0: Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Navarra, brought to you on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm James Butler and I'm joined in the studio this week by the author and journalist James Meek to discuss his new book, Private Island, Why Britain Now Belongs to Someone Else. The book collects a number of the essays featured in the London Review of Books and in The Guardian, which have explored the gradual privatisation of various fundamental services or necessary parts of social life over the past few decades, from water through to healthcare. As ever, listeners of the show can comment on Twitter using the hashtag NovaraFM and follow us on an ever-multiplying range of social media platforms from Facebook to Tumblr under the name Novara Media. James, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show.
1: Nice to be here. Thanks.
0: Uh, You introduced the book with a provocative comparison between your experiences immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the tranche of privatizations in Britain over the past couple of decades. Perhaps we can begin with that comparison and how you came to write this book.
1: What happened to me, uh, the things that I experienced and witnessed in uh, the former Soviet Union were a sort of lesson for me in the relationship between policy and what actually happens to people. Uh, That's not something that you normally see happening in, in real time. And I had this very intense Experience, first of all, arriving in Ukraine in 1991 when the Soviet Union still existed and seeing how badly it worked, seeing how badly a fully fledged, uh, supposedly socialist planned economy. Uh, with all the restrictions that they put on people, uh, how badly it worked. And, and I don't mean badly um, for rich people, I mean badly for everyone, um, how in fact it was a very exploitative system for, for ordinary people, um, despite the, the kind of security that it offered, the, the, the certainty it offered. Um, so there was that. And then in those first few months after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, there seemed to be quite a lot of positive things about the, the arrival of, of some kind of market economy. There was a lot more freedom. There was a lot more uh, independence. A lot of new ideas were, were, were floating around. But what then happened was you began to see how the uh, the new local capitalists, uh, I would say rather badly mentored by Western examples, um, Found how they could quickly gain control of uh, still quite viable state enterprises uh, and uh, start skimming off vast amounts of uh, of money from from the profits uh, and In the early days, it was really quite extreme. You would have uh, huge sectors of the economy which were still working uh but the workers weren't being paid and yet somehow the new managers sometimes they were uh old style uh, bosses they'd simply taken over their old their old companies and were running them now as private enterprises or um new people coming in from the world of the uh, of the black market or or the uh or the young communist league um so uh at that time i thought well yes privatization here is obviously completely different from the way it is in in our in our countries Uh, But I think that experience of of the speeded up uh, effects, uh, this very immediate direct connection between what people do in in parliaments and and chanceries uh, and what actually happens down on the ground, that sharpened my senses uh, for when I came back to Britain. uh, And I saw that, in fact, there were some very direct connections, Uh, perhaps it was a, a more subtle process. It was definitely a more subtle process, but still, there was this same process of uh, legalized embezzlement going on uh, on, on a, a smaller scale. But nonetheless, it's 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 always wrong when uh, when it happens. Uh, and uh, you, there was also this question of uh, the way that the the framework, the ideological framework. Uh, was creating this false narrative about how a modern society, a successful modern society like Britain or America or Germany, uh, how it works, how it actually functions, and how the services that to some extent we take for granted, how they actually came about and how they, and how they work. Um, one, of the, uh, <laughs> one of the things about writing a book like this Uh, and um, being uh, very generously asked to appear in in fora like this. Um, I've done quite a few events around the country. You don't stop thinking about what you've written and you go on developing your ideas uh, and the The book came came about in several stages, so first of all, I was writing these as separate articles, and then to a certain point, I began to think of it as a book, so it began to be well, how will I put this together in a, in a coherent way but then, after the book is is done there's this uh, you sort of come to it as a reader really, and even though you wrote it yourself and you think well what are the what are the bigger what are the wider um ideas uh what really binds this together and I came up with this concept um which I don't use, actually use in the book, but I think it's a, it's a useful one, this idea of the universal network, uh, which is what unites all these enterprises, all these organizations that I write about in the book. I'm not writing about restaurants. I'm not writing about carpet shops. I'm not writing about car businesses. I'm not writing about oil companies. I'm writing about something called what I call universal networks. And what that is is a service which society has decided everyone must have access to. They need it. They cannot do without it. It is essential. They must have, everyone must have health care. Everyone, every child must have education. Everyone must have electricity. And we're also seeing now um, that this isn't a, a static process; it's a dynamic process. And we're seeing how um, we're seeing the death of one, probably the death of one old network, the Universal Postal Service, and we're seeing the the growth of another one, uh, broadband, broadband internet, uh, and broadband internet now is just at that point where it moves from being an optional thing to an essential thing. And once it moves to an essential universal network, then something important happens. It becomes a political thing, whether the people who are running it like it or not. It that is what it is. You can't get away from the fact that there are always going to be there's always going to be a section of society that is going to struggle to afford these services. Uh, and there are always going to be people making the argument, which I think is the correct one, that society as a whole benefits when society as a whole supports those people who are least able to afford a service and uh, and, and make sure that there's a, not just the service but a minimum standard of service for everyone and make sure that uh, everyone is paying their fair share, by which I mean that the those who have the most pay the most.
0: Yeah, I mean, so the one of the things that actually struck me when when reading through the book were, um, very particularly, the, these parallels between, you know, each service. And I, I should say that um, you you deal with sort of various uh, various of these services in in each chapter of the book. Sort of uh, rail, water, energy, health, um, health being a, a strange one, and I think which we'll devote some time to. Um, not quite privatized, not quite not privatized. Um, I I mean one of the things that, that that struck me sort of most about it really was this question of um you know forms of accountability for services like these or, or large infrastructure projects like these um that uh, endure far longer than governments um, and that, that as you point out, have have pretty much a monopoly on on the extraction uh, of what would be called fees, and they arrive as bills, but are more or less taxes for access to things without which one cannot live. And I, I guess the, the most obvious of these is is the water supply, which I mean is really astonishing. Actually, the chapter in the book about that.
1: Yes, the uh, the, the water. Supply is a particularly glaring example of the way in which it's not simply infrastructure, it's not simply an essential service, a universal network that's been privatized, it's actually the taxation system. And in a way, it's, uh, it's, it's the, the people who use the water themselves, it's, it's the privatization of a source of, of revenue. Um, and it is a monopoly. And this is the crucial thing that uh, supposedly one of the things that privatization, privatization was about was bringing a competition in. Mm-hmm. But the water companies don't really compete with each other because if you're in one particular area, you have absolutely no choice as to whether to subscribe to that service or not. So um, there was a point um, in the 70s when it was clear... Um, or at least this is the, this is the official story, um, and I have no reason to believe it's, it's untrue, it was clear that a lot of money was going to have to be spent on the, the water system in this country. On the one hand, the European Union had come in um, and very kindly pointed out that our uh, water quality wasn't really very good uh, and that it wasn't really a very nice thing um, to dump a lot of sewage in the water. Uh, and on the other hand, a lot of the infrastructure had been built Uh, in the Victorian era and did need to be renewed and repaired it was leaking terribly Um, so in other words a lot of money had to be found from somewhere to uh, to repair it now that money could have come directly from the taxpayer it could have come indirectly from the taxpayer in the sense that the government could have issued bonds for these water companies uh, and and paid back the paid back the bondholders uh, or it could have uh, what they could have done is privatized the taxation. They could have pretended that taxes weren't being raised. In fact, they could have lowered taxes supposedly, while at the same time allowing the water companies to charge whatever it was that they needed, plus a huge percentage on top, uh, in order to to do this work. So the work w- the work would get done, but it would be more expensive, and it would be all carried out under the uh, the, the the fake. Uh, idea of um, it is the private company itself that is doing the so-called investment, whereas in fact all they're doing is collecting your money and then spending it again. So it was a transfer of taxation. But the other key point about that, that transfer was that by moving it from taxation uh, through, the, through the exchequer, through the, the standard uh, government system, to private taxation, uh, it became a flat rate charge. Um, yes, if you have a water meter, then if you have a big house and you use a lot of water, you, you pay slightly more. But it's not the way it is with income tax, namely a percentage where the, the very richest pay a significantly larger percentage of their income than than the less well-off to. So effectively, they created a, a kind of secret water poll tax uh, where this flat fee means that proportionately the poorest pay pay the most, and the same thing has happened in in all the other services and it's it 's still going on and with electricity, people think that well uh, if i don 't like my electricity supplier, I can always um, always choose another one, and that happens. Uh, but there are two problems with that. One is that you have absolutely no idea whether the very cheapest supplier is not ripping you off because uh, the the way that the price of electricity is determined is completely opaque uh, and uh, almost incomprehensible to everyone except the people in whose interest it is for it to be as high as possible. Um, and the other thing is that only part of the money you pay through your electricity bill goes to this these competing companies. Uh, slightly less than half, but not much less, goes to um, other places, which are in a way kind of monopoly situations, um, or hidden taxes. One is the the, uh, the so-called green tax. I say green, so-called, because at the moment it is being used to pay for renewable energy like wind power, which personally I support, um, but in future it will be used to build nuclear power stations. Um, but there's also a significant part of your electricity bill uh, which goes to another monopoly provider. It's the the person or the organization who owns the cables under your feet that carry the electricity from the power stations to your house. Uh, and in, I think, every part of England now... Um, that is owned by a non-local organization. Uh, in London, it is uh, Asia's richest man, Lee Caching, great name, <laughs> um, who's, who's cashing in on uh, on on, the, on that monopoly position. Um, and in, in many parts of Britain, it's uh, some consortium of uh, foreign investors who are investing the money of, um, of foreign pensioners.
0: Right. I mean, this is one of the things that I found most striking is, again and again, you have uh, this sort of large, abstract agglomerations of of capital now owning sort of uh, really, really fundamental things. And on the one hand, it it struck me that it mirrored really the rise in in the service sector of of that extraction of basic and fundamental services by things like Serco or G4S or Atos. Doubtless, who have various pension funds invested in uh, in these things, um, so you have here the I, I guess that that kind of rise. Um, I mean, one of the thing one of the things that that really you know. I sort of knew in the abstract before reading the book was was exactly you know how much in that period of of what you call you know that awkward point between um, between history writing and journalism, which is you know the last sort of few decades really twenty five thirty years, mm-hmm. um, is really how much at, at the beginning of that period was owned by the state, um, it was in state hands in in one sense, and, and exactly how much had been had been taken off. Um, and you know, I, I, mean, I, I one of the really astonishing things that I sort of I must have known because I've read it enough times that really a third of, of people um, lived in housing that was owned by the state. And and this would have been such a normal thing um, in a way that it has become sort of profoundly different now. Um, and I, I mean to the, in the sense here that, that along with these sort of changes in ownership and these sort of economic changes, there has existed as far as, you know, as far as I can tell, a, a, a culture war for a long time, um, precisely in favour of you know what Thatcher would have called a property owning democracy, um, and uh, I and I guess I wonder if you could say a little about how that dream has sort of you know if, if it was ever sincerely held has sort of failed to to manifest in the way that say Lawson and Thatcher wanted.
1: Yes, Thatcher. I've I've come to um, a, a deeper understanding, if that's the word, of um, of Thatcher since, and her relationship with those around her uh, since writing this book, um, or during writing this book, uh, and reading her her autobiography. Um, it it seems to me now that the the main charge that can be laid against Thatcher um, in this respect is not so much that she was a fervent privatiser herself, uh, but that she um, very cynically allowed herself to go against um, what she actually believed um, and allowed the, these other figures like Nigel Lawson and Alan Walters um, and, and Sir Keith Joseph, she allowed them to uh, have their ideological way. Uh, it seems to me that her um, main goal which very much coincided with with privatization and and was very much enabled by it um, was to destroy the unions um, because she saw them as a manifestation of socialism which was which was pure evil as far as she was concerned um, she, But I think her actual ideas about economics were were quite um quite confused uh, on the one hand, she had this example of her father uh, the, the this grocer. Uh, and really, when you read her biography, it's 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 hard not to conclude, insane as it sounds, that she she thought that it was possible that somebody running a little grocery shop could be the same um, sort of individual and could operate in somehow the same way as somebody running um, a, a, a water company or a uh, or a power station. She was incredibly naive about the uh, skills and abilities of British the British. Uh, private executive class um, which has been shown to be extremely low Um, and Time and again, you find that she was actually originally opposed to some privatization. She, she was one of the earliest people to be asked by her party to look into electricity privatization. She concluded it wouldn't work. She was very opposed to council house privatization in the beginning. And yet, uh, with astonishing cynicism, she, she seized on uh, on that policy in particular, council housing. Um, and um, and made it made it her own um, because it, it it gave her political advantage. But to talk about about council housing, um, it is an example, an astonishing example of uh, a blatant example of market failure, uh, showing how the free market does not do what it what its its most uh, fanatical proponents claim that it will do. Uh, namely, uh, step in where there 's a gap in the market and and provide and and compete um, when they began selling off council houses and made it all but impossible for councils to build new ones to replace the ones that were selling off. I think there was um, a belief, a hope, and expectation that private house builders would step in and build more houses for rent to to some extent. Um, albeit more expensively, um, fill the gap. Well, they didn't. It's it's very simple. They just did not. If you look at the at the figures, uh, house building basically flatlined, uh, private house building. Uh, so you had no new uh, subsidised housing being built, and uh, and and no increase in the number of private houses. So that is why we have a private, uh, why we have a housing shortage, and and one certainly in the south of England. Uh, and one of the reasons why why prices are so high um i think i mean i what i'm expressing in this book is very much my disappointment with the present uh and my explanation of how we got here rather than my idealization of the past uh there didn't seem any point to me uh in attacking the way that the pre-privatization industries were run. I could have done so because there were a lot of problems and I certainly do not um, idealize them. Uh, And I would like to see my book just become one part of um, that effort to try and make something better rather than to try and think of it as a reversal, a reversion to some kind of golden past um, or indeed, um, a kind of a line of sandbags to, to stop, um, in a very passive and reactive way, the uh, the changes that uh, that the the right is is trying to to implement. Having said all that, um, and being very very aware of all the failings of council housing, uh, and they were they were legion, I do feel that it wasn't given time. Uh, when they build an aircraft carrier, it's an incredibly complicated piece of machinery. Uh, they they put it together, they put engines in it, they put electronics in it, they put a crew on board, they launch it, they send it out to sea, but it's not ready. It needs two or three years need to pass of it running around, bits breaking down, being replaced. Uh, so when you build it, it's only the beginning of actually finishing it, as it were. Um, I feel it was something like that with, with council housing. At the very moment when there were houses for everyone, when the uh, there were so many houses that really you could get one, whoever you were. There was just like one for about five minutes in the 1970s. That was the point when it was time to, uh, to go on to... Uh, Improve the the houses that have been built to knock down the worst ones and replace them with others, uh, and also perhaps to well not perhaps definitely to say to the councils, look, you're not doing a very good job of running these things. You're not responsive to tenants' needs. Um, it's not uh, it's not a part of. Uh, it's only one small part of your activities. Maybe it would be better to take these away from you uh, and set up different arm's length organisations. So you know it's it's. It, it was destroyed before it had a chance to really
0: uh, find itself. I mean, one of the things we often talk about um, on the show is, is that question of uh, what it would look like actually to, to decommodify a housing market or, or to attempt to remove housing from from that question of, of something that, that, that operates, you know, as a store for cash or as a, a mode of investment and things like that. Um, it, it, I mean, it's interesting to me whenever that sort of... Uh, idea arrives it's just so completely unrealistic but then you know if you're starting from now then the notion that <laughs> that you could house everyone seems so improbable anyway and yet you know 30 years ago it was uh, you know a, a reasonable thing to think about um i mean the the question that often strikes me i i, I think you know one of the frustrations i have with the way that sort of uh, uh, the left from from the labor party sort of Heading leftwards tries tries to deal with this question is to point to an instance historically where things sort of went off track and to attempt to yeah you know, as you say sort of reverse back to then and it doesn't it doesn't seem to me that that, that would now be possible um, but it, in one sense here I, I I sort of understand where the impulse comes from which is where sort of one sees on every side. Things being sort of taken away and, and you know the temptation is to just attempt to staunch the flow for, for a moment first. To staunch
1: the flow uh, and also to make um to make a point and I know that um Ed Miliband is very much criticized for uh the idea of a price freeze on uh, the electricity companies for example. He uh He's criticized on the right because uh, he shouldn't be interfering with the market in that way. How can you possibly know what's going on? You can't just, uh, say, um, make an arbitrary line and say you're not allowed to charge more than this. Um, and, of course, on the left by not, not going far enough. Uh, but I think the point of that particular policy, and, and it's certainly it's, it's <laughs> a fraction of what is required um, and is quite timid, uh, the point of it is just to say to to remind the one set of private companies that there is a government, that it does exist, mm-hmm. and that it has power, and that its job is not simply to make it easy for uh, for private companies to uh, to to gain revenue stream, but to uh, to actually govern for the people who elected it. So I think there are some that there's a huge scope for that kind of demonstrative. Action, but at the same time, one of the points about these universal networks, uh, and that is what I am writing about after all, um, is uh, is that they are fantastically complex. And you've already touched on that point that the lifetime of a policy, when it relates to something like building a railway or building a nuclear power station, uh, is uh, is that it's much, much longer the lifetime of the policy than the lifetime of the government that that introduces it. Uh, I mean, we uh, on on the left there was a lot of uh, excitement and uh, and and jubilation when Michael Gove left power as Education Secretary. Um, but the children who are in school now um, they're sort of pre-Gove, and and the, there'll be this this chunk of Gove children who will be moving through the system for another fifty years. And I'm not quite sure when, at which point these. Gove makes his mark on Britain by these particular children uh coming to positions of of authority and responsibility, um, but it 's not now and it 's not uh, for another ten or fifteen years
0: yes i mean the the striking thing that really i mean the, the one of the of early chapters in fact the first chapter I think in the book is um is the chapter dealing with rail track, which is really a, an astonishing story, I mean, I, it's, and again, it's a complex and, and and you know a story that has a long history. A history really starting in 1870, um, which you know, I mean, I, you would you would hope that our, our sort of um, our betters would be attempting to think in centuries rather than in periods of five years, but it seems a relatively rare thing for governments to try to do. Um, but I mean, I, I wonder if you could you know, just just summarise for us a bit about that that interaction between sort of. Um, you know, railtrack and its executives, and sort of in various flows of management consultants, sort of flapping in and, uh, uh, and gradually destroying <laughs> uh, any attempt at, at, uh, at uh, renewing or, or the West Coast Main Line. The
1: railtrack was really doomed uh, from the moment it was set up. Uh, it didn't really make financial sense, uh, as a, if you remember. When we were talking about water, there was this job of work to be done, Uh, and it was the same with rail track. That there was this one particular big project that they needed to uh, they needed to get done, namely to rebuild the West Coast Main Line, much of the infrastructure of which uh, had not been literally hadn't been touched since the nineteenth century. Um, It was a bit like sort of an old a bodged flat conversion. Uh, where the wiring was all was all shot, and uh, they just put these cheap partitions in, and you know it, it really was not um, wasn't uh, as they say that horrible phrase fit for purpose. Uh, so investment needed to be made, but uh, the at the same time as rail track came into being, it, it, one of the ideological currents that was driving it, both within and without the organisation, was this railway for too long has been uh, driven by engineers uh, and of course engineers should have nothing to do with the railway obviously <laughs> a railway should be run by accountants um, that's, that's obvious to anyone um, so they sacked uh, everyone pretty much who was in a position to give an independent uh, assessment uh, or, or rather not independent, in-house assessment of what outside experts were telling them. So having done that, they then got a bunch of outside experts to say, well, how can we, um, how can we rebuild this railway? Uh, and it became clear that they couldn't. The only way that they could do it was if they fantasized about a technology which had been worked on and talked about, but didn't actually exist uh, to abolish signaling, basically, and uh, create a system where, rather like mobile phones, trains had these um, these radio transmitters and there were transmitters along the track and the entire railway system was controlled electronically. Uh, and uh, you could make clo- trains run much faster, much closer together, uh, much more frequently. You could do all this if the technology worked. Unfortunately, it didn't and the uh the the people at railtrack were pursuing this uh this project even though um the europeans uh the, the main world center at that time for um railway technological expertise had already concluded that this was premature that it might work one day but not yet so the whole privatization of railtrack was predicated on this non-existent technology and um they then made things worse by signing all these contracts uh with various uh between the railways. That was one of the features of rail track that it, it and, and the privatization of the railways generally that it brought in this extraordinary web of private contracts between operators. Uh, by signing all these contracts which, which obliged them to do things uh by certain dates which, uh, because of this technology being a fantasy technology, they clearly were not able to do. So uh, as uh, the the fundamental problems of maintaining the railway on a day-to-day basis uh, began to become apparent, uh, as it became clear that there wasn't any magic in the private sector, that they could somehow take £10 and, and make it into £40, which is what sometimes the... Uh, the, the, the pro market government seemed to think uh, that there was no such magic, and they 'd got rid of most of their skilled people. Uh, the, the whole thing just began to disintegrate, but not before um, large amounts of money from the taxpayer had been uh, had been passed on to shareholders in the form of dividends. Uh, so it might seem to some that there's a certain satisfaction in seeing one of the flagship privatizations of the 1990s collapse and fail so spectacularly. Uh, and now the railways, um, not the train companies, but the railways are back in public hands and they seem to be uh, run with with reasonable efficiency. Um, but it's still, it's, it's not really satisfactory because so much damage was done. Uh, and, and yet you won't hear the people who constantly talk about privatization as the cure for everything and the efficiency of the private sector. You won't hear them talking about about rail trackers uh, as an example of um, how easily things can go wrong in the private sector. It, It does seem to be, there is still this... This prevailing ideology that when something goes wrong in the private sector, it's, it's just a one-off thing. It's just one of these things happen. Whereas when something goes wrong in the public sector, it's, um, oh yes, these, these bureaucrats, they have no idea what to do, do they?
0: Um, I wonder if, because uh, one of the things that, that it was really um, noticeable, just at occasional points through the book, um, was this sense that with many of the people that you were interviewing who were who were not sort of you know various executives, at various points in in, in the chain, but were people either working on on a day to day basis in in these in these services or um, were, were users of the services. So you have um, you know some uh, engineer on on the railway saying you know the railway doesn't work like that. You're not manufacturing baked beans, um, right? It's a different thing to which these these logics can't be applied. And then you have someone you know talking about water saying, oh, I suppose it, I think it should be nationalised. Um, you have one of um the the french robin hoods um around the the around energy um and these are people just to, just as an aside who sort of uh, work for e d f and sort of reconnect people you know, in the last instance if they 've been uh, disconnected um, uh, these people saying you know energy we, we regard energy like culture it's not a private good that's an incredibly french thing to say mm. um, but, um, but then and of course you have, you have this stuff around health as well and again uh, around royal mail where you know you or, or, or the postal service elsewhere as well where you have people saying you know, they think of it you know the universal service obligation there is sort of part of our economic and social glue, and so so I was wondering, you know, the, this extent to which it seems that there are a huge number of people, in particular users of the service, who feel, you know, fundamentally that these are things that that shouldn't be subject, um, you know, to to these kind of uh, these privatizations, but but also simply being run in this manner, right, to extract profit or to extract these taxes, um, and yet this doesn't seem this this doesn't seem to translate um, in any way uh you know either up the scale within these companies or or, or within these industries or I- indeed politically either um I wonder why that is
1: I wish i knew uh and uh all I can say is that uh I feel politicians like nigel farage now um are playing on this sense of alienation that people. Are experiencing not just from from privatization, but also from this process, which I think is is quite closely related to it. Um, this process of chainification, where uh, everything is uh, is merely a franchise of some mysterious, far off um, owner. Um, so there is uh, a a question, an imperative for um, a change of in the way that people talk, and I, I don't know where this comes from. I mean, I'm I'm doing my best, but it's just one small contribution, and it does require a number of steps, uh, which which may not come about. It requires uh, more people um, like myself to to be talking in these terms. It requires a a recognition from uh, the newsrooms of Britain and the world, but particularly Britain that uh, there needs to be a much closer relationship between the, the people on, in the news organizations who know about business, who know the, the terminology and the meaning of concepts like, like debt and finance, um, to, to work much more closely with the general journalists and for the general journalists to educate themselves about uh, this new framework. It's, it's as if we're still uh, operating uh, in terms of the media in in the 1970s, uh, a world of of, of powerful trade unions and strong government, um, and and um, uh, they, quaintly bureaucratic town halls, uh, and um, uh, bankers in in suits and bowler hats. When in fact the the world outside is completely different, and, and the uh, the private corporations now, um, or the shareholder owned corporations, have enormous political power. They refuse to acknowledge this, and they will go on refusing to acknowledge this uh, until they are, they are held to account, until this same kind of empty chair approach, we asked such and such a person to comment, but they refuse to do so, is applied to people like the, the chief executives of the, uh, of the big six energy companies um, or, or the, these remote owners of, uh, of water companies. That's just not happening at the moment. Uh, they're, they're sort of invisible, and they're allowed to be invisible. But it requires more than that. I, I'm not one of these people who have completely given up on the, uh, the existing political infrastructure of the left uh, I still think that you know t- to put it uh, at its at its most mild that there is uh, a political infrastructure there which is waiting to be used by uh, people with with ideas uh, and I mean I mean the infrastructure of the labor party um but they need to or they need to be forced to um confront the mistakes of the 1990s, the Blair years. There needs to be a, a lot of um, self-examination and mea corpus, um, and not just about the terrible things they did, but also about how some of their good ideas went bad. Uh, and I know I will uh, alienate many on the left if I say that I don't consider uh, ideas like academies for foundation trusts for hospitals to necessarily have been a bad idea, uh, the problem was that they were not ring fenced triple locked defended uh, set up with the one of the main primary aims not to make them a way station to commercialization and then effective privatization, which is what has happened. Um, the academies are, are turning into change they 're turning into they 're being commercialized. Um, the the uh, international sharks are circling. Um, and, of course, the same thing is happening with the NHS. But simply taking uh, a big state organization and giving elements of it more autonomy uh, and changing the way they operate can't necessarily be a bad thing. I, I, the idea that, that nothing must change uh, in, in or no one must ever change job in... Uh, in a socialist uh, paradise,
0: uh, there's not one that I can agree with. Right. I mean, I, I think probably this is actually an excellent point to come to to discuss the NHS because this is, I think, this issue is, is most live um, for 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 people now in regards um, you know reforms to reforms to the health service. I mean, I guess one of the things to start with, and and um, it's one of the things that has always amazed me, uh, is precisely and it's something that exists beyond um, the health service, but it's it's particularly noticeable there, is the sort of revolving door between sort of private enterprise and sort of high-level either public office or civil service. So... You know, I'm thinking thinking sort of Enthoven, um, Mark Brittenauer, and you list some of these people. Well, uh, Simon Milburn in particular, the, yeah. Uh, the, yeah,
1: the new head of, the, of NHS England. Um, that's his job, I think, isn't yeah. it? Um, he, he was a civil servant, and then he worked for um, one of the biggest American private health companies, and now he's a civil servant again. Uh, and he probably worked for private health again. That, yeah. that seems to be acceptable. Uh, I don't think it is, but it's a, the effect... Uh, of uh more than a generation now of relentless denigration of the idea of public service and duty as motives for uh for doing a job uh, and the relentless promotion of the idea of personal greed as not only the the regrettable uh source of of motivation but but also somehow admirable so yeah i mean i i would like to see much tougher um rules put in place regarding this uh regarding the revolving door uh, uh, the current minister responsible for the civil service francis moore is a I f- i find him a terrifying figure he, he still seems to uh, have this religious idea of the uh, the virtue, the inherent virtue of the private sector. Uh, he doesn't seem to believe that it is ever possible for somebody who is employed by the state or, as we might say, by the people, to uh, to do anything right uh, or to do uh, to take any initiative. And of course bureaucrats can screw up and just as anyone can. But uh to say that they are always going to fail, they are always going to diminish, they're always going to be uh less in some way than a than a, a, a profit motivated individual uh is is demonstrably false. And yet he he you can only call it religious because it makes so little sense.
0: Um I I, I, I suppose I mean one of the, one of the reasons the NHS is on the the minds of people are- at the moment, certainly, sort of people who who pay <laughs> pay attention to this stuff is is the the, the, the forthcoming sort of, uh, a transatlantic trade and industry partnership, a series of treaties and agreements, um, which it, it, you know, which campaigners certainly argue, uh, and it seems to me quite quite clear that it will open up the NHS in, in a way to sort of um, private bidders uh, and and sort of these large private healthcare companies um, in a way that 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 has has thus far not been entirely the case. But, I mean, I, I suppose, I guess, it's it's worth saying that this is the end of quite a long process within the NHS, right? I mean, there, there have been a series of reorganizations um, over you know, the last couple of decades which have sort of really opened it up or, or, or set the stage for this kind of thing, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: This has uh, been going on for a long time. And it's, it's, it's difficult because uh, there are so many... St- process is moving at the same time, uh, you have uh, the changing demographics of the country, you have the uh, acceptance that uh, the original NHS was set up in haste uh, with what resources they found themselves with uh, and that there was always going to have to be a restructuring and and probably successive restructurings. Uh, and uh, And then you have the Constantly changing sometimes very radically, and always very expensively changing technology of of healthcare so you have all these processes going on, and the idea that the NHS can never be completely static uh, is 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 simply false uh, but these pressures have been very cleverly used by the the marketeers the privatizers to um, to jemmy away at the cracks and uh to open up spaces through which they they can enter um and it's uh i i don't think i I'd, I'd like to imagine it would be nice to sort of think that there was some some dark room somewhere where a group of men sat round and men and women sat around and and said, here is our plan to destroy the n h s and this is how we're going to do it. Perhaps that happened. I doubt it. Uh, but you don't always have to have a a worked-out plan for it to be implicit um, in in nods and winks and handshakes and understandings that um, this is what we are doing. And it it does seem that this kind of unspoken plan is being put into effect. We can't privatise it just like that because that would be politically impossible. What we can do is we can say until we're blue in the face, that we're not going to privatise it and it's safe in our hands, while at the same time um, dismantling it. It's, it's as if it's, it's like the skeleton is still there, but the, the flesh is being is being eaten away. Uh, and the whole thing is again um, almost um, religious in its in its fervour, in the sense that if you were simply looking for the cheapest option, uh, you would stick with the NHS as it was because it is the cheapest option. Uh and uh you know in the past it has been a little bit gruff uh, and said to people well you know you can't have that because there isn't enough to go around. Um and if if you were simply trying to save money and people have gone along with that because okay it's fair it's that that slight faint echo of of wartime rationing. Mm. Um and um and, and people accept that. But uh but it seems that it the the government would rather um it was more expensive uh, than, um than that they than that they kept the the degree of, of of public control that they have. Of course, they probably feel uh once it's it's safely out of the public hands, they can start chipping away at the uh at the benefits for the um for the poorer. Uh, people and and create more of a of a two tier service as the, increasingly they have in they have in other countries uh, not just America. I mean, people do tend to focus obsessively on America, uh, but America is only one and an increasingly small part of the world. And um, uh, what's going on in in uh, Western Europe is is also very interesting, uh, particularly in France, where from the outside it seems to us that they have this great system, but actually it's it's creaking at the seams, and and they are very much moving towards a, a two-tier service, where if you want to see the the state doctor, then um, you'll have to queue, and uh, you'll feel you'll feel rightly or wrongly that you're not getting a very good service, uh, and if you've got a little bit of extra money, you'll buy insurance. Uh, you'll see a better doctor the one you have to pay extra for and so on and so forth
0: i mean there's something i guess that it's hard not to feel melancholic after reading the book and um you know i mean that's partly just the consequence of the last few decades i think right which is is something to do with the kind of scale of these changes and how little resistance in many ways there's been to them um i guess in in opposition to that um one of the things that has struck me around london certainly in the past few years and this is largely a function i assume of necessity rather than you know, a, a sudden uptick in in class consciousness or something um is that people are, are beginning to, to to try to figure out a way to do something politically around housing uh, and now often that's that's fought on a very small scale, you know, to do with a single eviction or, or, you know, a few people attempting to, and we saw recently, um, uh, the, uh, a group of mothers in, in East London in how Hamlet's uh, trying to, uh, really bring this issue to, to the forefront. Um, I guess both the housing issue and the health issue have to confront something that that is, in one sense, a, a wider political problem, which is that that the era of social democracy, it, I, I mean, it has been you know, under ideological assault certainly for for decades, but has demographic problems as well. Right, we have as a consequence of the era of social democracy, uh, a, a much older population and, uh, and one that's going to be increasingly older and will need housing and will need uh, health care. Now, certainly there are ways to deal with that, but they don't seem to be on the cards. In in one sense, it seems to me that, that people have their, their heads rather buried in the sands about this. The other question I, I suppose is to do uh, is really a, a financial one, right? I mean, in the middle of the 20th century, you have you know, two world wars in which, you know, <laughs> huge changes to to national economies have, have taken place simply by virtue of the fact of war. Um, you also have sort of post-war demographic explosion, you have uh, people entering, you know, a whole, you know, half the human race really, entering into work in, uh, in, in the Western world on a mass scale for the first time. You have uh, huge technological advances, uh, and you also have, in Britain in particular, the collapse of empire and thus an influx of relatively cheap labour into things like uh, the you know the NHS for its first few decades. Uh, and combined with the sort of general social democratic consensus, you have you know these institutions. I you know given that that doesn't seem possible to repeat, the question really is you know. How do we make those things, which are so obviously needs, which are these sort of universal uh, networks, as, as as you put it, uh, which are so obviously important and necessary? How, you know, how do we make that work?
1: Well, there's a, a lot of big <laughs> questions there. It's it's the the future of civilization you're um, you're dealing with. Um, yes, it is easy to get it is easy to get downhearted, um, but at the same time, I. Personally, I, I'm very um, resistant to uh, to sweeping um, overall uh, ideas of of change. I'm 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 wary of um, absolutism in any form. Uh, and one of the rather poignant things, I suppose, is a way of putting it, um, that I've experienced since the book came out uh, and traveling around the country. Um, that you you do feel this tremendous hunger for um ideas but also for leadership uh to to move things in a different direction but at the same time i feel there's um a heterogenization of uh of belief political belief um and and it is very much belief uh rather than thought <laughs> um sort of cool thought and uh I felt that a lot of people, and and perhaps this is a consequence of of living in the internet age where where you can always find the truth that you want and ignore the truth that you don't like, uh, that people are becoming more polarized and uh, are are wanting to hear you reassure them uh, about what they already believe and would be just as ready to hear a a rant uh, and a lament uh, and perhaps would rather have that than... A a sort of a cool discussion of what is to be done. Uh, So it's been disappointing to me that that I've been having this conversation about the book and the ideas in it almost entirely within quite a small um, world of um, concerned um, left-wing liberal people, and that I haven't been challenged, I haven't been attacked um, by uh, the people that I am attacking. Uh and I feel almost as if I have to be my own <laughs> my own uh critic. Uh because um otherwise it would be easy to cherry pick the things that I, I say that, that seem um in 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 chime with uh this sort of um things have never been so bad attitude. If it was as simple as that, then it would all be a lot easier. Uh but I, I don't think it is as simple as that and Amongst all this, all my criticisms, all my uh, attacks, all this history of, of incompetence and failure, which is all entirely genuine, at the same time, things have been built uh, and people's lives have in certain ways changed for for the better. Uh, I, I think it's one of the significant points in the... Well, there's a couple of significant points in the book uh, that that might not jump out at you, but they're quite significant for me. Um, one is the story of this um, this hip um, in the n h s chapter because the the story of hip replacement has very much been the story of the n h s um, and um, and the way in which consumerism came into into medicine and you have this heroic operation which is incredibly uh, complex and dangerous you 're ripping somebody open, taking bones out of them, and putting um, artificial uh, bits inside them and sewing them up again, and then sending them out into the world. Um, it's, it seems extraordinary that um, that that could have been that could have become an arena for consumerism, and yet it has. Uh, and so you have the uh, private companies competing against each other to sell different kinds of hips, uh, some of which. Have turned out to be defective. Uh, many of which, even if they work, are not actually necessary. But the reason they're able to do that is because they play on people's weakness, um, this sense that somebody has got something better than I have. So it's 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 a part of the uh, of the of the story. It's not just about. Big, powerful external forces coming in, and people being completely passive. It's also about people making their own choices uh, about. Um, oh, I, 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 think I should have a a better hip. Even if it's going to break the, even if it's going to break the NHS. But of course, they don't usually make that uh, make that conclusion. Um, the uh, The other point is is about the difficulty of change in a relatively rich country Um, things are bad for a lot of people in this country um, in absolute numbers Uh, but they are not as bad as they were Uh, and the Labour Party cannot recreate the slums only to demolish them again, it can't take the toilets out of people's houses and put them in the backyard um, only to, to put them in again that's is one of the left's problems that the, uh, the 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 issues it's being asked to address are are more subtle and more diffuse uh and yes there are children going hungry yes there are homeless people uh but in a democracy and of course this is one of the things that the the Tories work with um that number is um is quite small uh and so the battle is for the, for the middle, uh, and, and that doesn't look attractive to, um, to the radicals. Um, so um, that, these are our problems. But to, to be more optimistic, um, I think the, the watchwords for me, for the future... Uh, for those who want to see a better country and to deal with the problems that we have um, are about our labor, not the party, but the word that the party once came out of. This idea of work as something that is not a punishment uh, and not something that you are forced to do in order that you go out and um, and then buy the consumer products that uh, make your, your life real. Uh, But work is labor is is a is is something that you do perhaps because you want to do a good job. And that feeds into the other word, which is which is care, care about the job, care about people, um, uh, care about uh, about doing things well as an alternative to simply uh, the profit motive.
0: Okay, well, um, many responses to that, no doubt. And I'm sure they'll explode over Twitter, hopefully. (laughs) Um, But James Meek, thank you very much. Um, This has been Navara FM. Uh, We will see you here on Resonance, same time, same place, next week.